going to let you in on a little secret, um, and I don't want to discourage you, but you will never personally save anyone. We've been talking about evangelism and how Paul's writing this epistle, this letter to the church in Rome, and we asked the question, why would he preach the gospel to a community that's already saved? And one of the main reasons is he is equipping them. He is sharing from his own personal experiences as he entered into the synagogues and into the marketplaces and had gospel-centered discussions. He's taking from that experience and he's sharing with the church, this is how you share and And this is how you defend the gospel. But we have to remember that none of us will ever save anyone. God is the one who saves. And he saves through his spirit. Our responsibility is to simply carry the message. We're messengers. We're ambassadors. We are called to just be faithful in that. And obviously, we carry the message in word, and we carry it in deed. We can remind people of God's great love through our actions, but we have to, have to, have to understand what the gospel message is. Because Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So, Paul, in the first three chapters, up until about verse 20, he's been laying the foundation of the gospel, which means good news, but the gospel kind of starts out with some bad news, that all of mankind is guilty before a perfect God, that we have all fallen short of his glory. Whether the Jew under the law, or the Gentile, apart from the law, we have all violated God's commands. And God is a just God, and he judges sin. And God, as Paul has so clearly pointed out, is not unfair in his judgment of sin. In fact, his goodness and his righteousness is displayed through his wrath. We all stand guilty before a good judge. And the verdict for our guilt or the sentence is death and destruction. So again, uh, the first three chapters it really hasn't been a, a super positive message, but that's not where we end. We've come from the cycle of death in the first three chapters where we have no defense, every mouth is stopped, we have no means of escaping within ourselves the wage of sin. And we're left asking like Job, how can a man be right before God? How can a man be righteous before God? Is there any hope? Isn't that the ultimate question? What do we do with the issue of death? The most important question we will ever ask is not how to have our best life, how to get the most out of this life. No, the most important question for every breathing human being is what's going to happen when I stop breathing, when death comes? How do I deal with that? Can I even deal with it? Many people today, we ignore it, especially the American culture. We take death and we hide it behind a veil because we don't want to think about it. And the only time it crosses our mind is when we attend a memorial service. But for the most part, we don't want to think about death. So we ignore it. We hide from it. We deceive ourselves. But the problem isn't going anywhere. Death is coming for all men and women but an acknowledgement that death itself is a consequence of our sin and we have brought it upon ourselves, that is the beginning of salvation and that's the foundation that Paul has led. We have to understand first and foremost that we are guilty before God and there's no one else to blame. And as The author of Proverbs writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to pose something. We we touched on this in our previous, previous study. So here's the question. How does mankind deal with the issue of death? Or put another way, how is a man 
made right with the giver of life, with God. And different world religions, they seek to answer that question in seemingly different ways. But I want to show you how, in reality, every world religion other than one seeks to be made right with God through a mixture of faith and works. Every world religion you will see answers that question with a combination of faith and works. Mormonism teaches that it's through the grace of God and your good works that you are saved. The grace of God works in conjunction with your good works and then you are saved. You have pleased God as long as you've done all that you can do. In the Mormon Bible from 2 Nephi 25:23, and this may be the only time we ever quote the Mormon Bible, but it says, for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved, comma, after all we can do. Islam in the Quran teaches that people are saved through obedience to Allah's law. In Surah 23, verses 102 to 104, they whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed, but they whose balances shall be light, they shall lose their soul, abiding in hell forever. What that means, if your good works outweigh your bad, Allah may accept you. He may accept you. But you won't know until the time comes before you stand before Allah and you're just hoping that your good works have outweighed the bad. What about Judaism? We've seen that as Paul has presented the gospel here in Romans. Salvation is understood primarily as Collective and national. There's a national salvation, not necessarily personal and individual. It's like in Exodus, the Lord heard the cries of the people and God responded and delivered them from bondage. But if you look more closely, Judaism teaches that one's right relationship with God is maintained through repentance, good deeds, and a life of devotion. It's what you do that really counts. It's what you do that makes you right with God. The Roman Catholics, some of you have come out of that faith, they teach that an individual is saved by God's grace through faith and good works and baptism and participation in the sacraments and penance and indulgences and keeping the commandments. This is a statement from catholicscomehome.org. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that we are saved by faith alone. Works do have something to do with our salvation. We believe a response of faith and works is necessary for salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses Salvation is described as a free gift from God, but it is said to be unattainable without good works. If you're a Hindu, salvation for the Hindu is achieved in one of three ways. The way of works, the way of knowledge, or the way of devotion. I would contend that those are all works. They all fall under the same category. It's about us. What can we do to be saved? And finally, if you're a Buddhist, you believe salvation. Now, stick with this one, okay? Salvation is liberation from such bondage through the transformation of our consciousness and our awakening to our true nature. Buddhists practice such, Buddhist practices such as meditation and worship provide the opportunity to become aware of our deeper self, our Buddha nature, our root in eternity. That's where they get the idea of karma. The sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. All world religions 
teach faith and works as a means to salvation. That's what they all have in common. So what does this look like in practical life? What does it mean played out in our culture? I have just a little clip for you. It's uh, Bishop Barron, who's a prominent Catholic. He's an author, a speaker. He's a theologian. He runs a ministry called Word on Fire. And he's speaking with a gentleman that you probably are aware of, Ben Shapiro who is a a Jewish attorney, he's a conservative political commentator, and he's a media host, and he's an author, and he's going to ask, Ben Shapiro is going to ask Bishop Barron, as a Catholic, do you think that I'm saved as a Jewish man? Let's hit the lights and listen. So let's start with the most awkward of the awkward questions. I don't really care about this question particularly much, but I get this question a lot, which is, yeah, as a Jew, how does it feel that there are other religions that don't think you're getting into heaven? So let me ask you, what's the Catholic view on who gets into heaven and who doesn't? I feel like I lead a pretty good life, a very religiously based life in which I try to keep not just the Ten Commandments, but a solid 603 other commandments as well. And I spend an awful lot of my time promulgating what I would consider to be Judeo-Christian virtues, particularly in Western societies. So what's the Catholic view of me? Am I basically screwed here? No. The Catholic view, go back to uh, the Second Vatican Council, says it very clearly. I mean, Christ is the privileged route to salvation. May God so love the world, he gave his only son that we might find eternal life. So that's the, the privileged route. However, Vatican II clearly teaches that someone outside the explicit Christian faith can be saved. Now, they're saved through the grace of Christ, indirectly received. So, I mean, the grace is coming from Christ. But it might be received according to your uh, conscience. So if you're following your conscience sincerely, or in your case, you're following the commandments of the law sincerely, yeah, you can be saved. Now, that doesn't conduce to a complete relativism. I, we still would say the privileged route and, and the, the route that God has, has offered to humanity is, is the route of his son. But no, you can be saved. Uh, even Vatican II says that an atheist of goodwill can be saved. Because in following his conscience, if he does, John Henry Newman said the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ in the soul. It's very interesting characterization that it is in fact the voice of christ if he's the logos made flesh right he's the divine mind or reason made flesh that when i follow my conscience i'm following him whether i know it explicitly or not so even the atheist vatican II teaches of goodwill can be saved so is that's a lot of words to be wrong isn't it that's how it plays out in our culture and Understand this, that's, that, that makes for a much more comfortable conversation. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I, I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, uh, I want to do right, I just don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, can I still, where am I going when I die? It's a much more comfortable conversation to say, well, Jesus is your conscience, And if you're following your conscience, you are following Jesus, and in turn, you are saved. That is a perfect road to hell. And it's heartbreaking that a man who would profess to believe the word of God, his ministry is called Word on Fire, would give such an unbiblical explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Ben has had other people on that have given him a very clear explanation of what it means to be born again. But understand this. This is what the world religions are all about. It is about faith and works. Salvation is on our shoulders. And guess what comes along with that? Very little assurance that we are ever truly saved. These are all false gospels. Because the Bible teaches very plainly that we are only saved, now hear me out, two ways. There are two ways to be saved. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ and his work at the cross. You can trust in his finished work. Or you can perfectly live out the law of God. You know, Ben made that statement that he had followed the Ten Commandments and all the 600 others, and my mind immediately went to the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? And he said, Jesus said, you know the law. What does the law say? And he said, well, I've I've followed the law. And Jesus says, no, no, one thing is missing. Sell all that you have 
Give it to the poor and follow me. Jesus wasn't saying that is the road to salvation. He was telling the rich young ruler, okay, if you want to be saved under the law, you can't break any of the laws. And you have. You have greed in your heart. So as Paul begins to turn the corner, He's laid the foundation that mankind is guilty before a perfectly righteous God. In Romans 3.21, he writes, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, Paul's not simply talking about God's personal righteousness. He's talking about God's righteousness imparted to somebody else. That God's righteousness is revealed apart from the law. Why does Paul talk about this so often in all of his letters to the churches? Because for some reason, we want to take control. We want to make salvation about us. We want to make it about our good works. And that is a false gospel. Now the accusation is, well, if it's just about grace, if it's simply trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, won't we go on sinning? And I would contend that if that's the case, if that's our mindset, we don't understand the grace of God. We don't understand the price that was paid. In Romans 3, 28, that's where we left off last week, Paul repeats, therefore we conclude that a man is justified in right standing with God. That an- the question has been answered. How is a man made right with God? Through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And now as we approach chapter 4, Paul's going to build a case for this fundamental truth. Because he is going to be and has been accused of teaching something that the Old Testament does not teach. He's going to be accused of misrepresenting the prophets and the priests and the law, but he is going to make it plain that no, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the prophets and the priests and the law pointed to. He says, this is how we move from the cycle of death into life. It is through the finished work of Jesus Christ so that no man can boast. Look at Romans chapter four, verse one. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses Abraham as an example. He says, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. What is our father Abraham? What has he received? What has he accomplished according to the flesh? Now, the Jewish individual would say everything. Abraham was a righteous man. Even though he was obedient to God before the law, 400 years before the law was ever given, he was righteous because he was obedient to the law even though he didn't know the law. That's what the Jewish individual would say. God chose Abraham because he was a righteous man. But look at what Paul writes in verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. He says that's not the case. Verse three, for what does scripture say? Do you remember in that clip when Ben asked the question, what do you think of me? Where, where am I gonna end up when I breathe my last death? Bishop Barron, what did he reference? He didn't say like Paul said, well, let's go back to the scriptures and find the answer. He said, no, what does the second Vatican say? That should be a red flag. When a question is asked, we should always look to the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So Paul says, okay, your argument is that I'm misrepresenting the Old Testament. Let's look at the Old Testament. Let's look at Father Abraham. Let's look at this patriarch of the Jewish faith, the gold standard, if you will. The only truly righteous man of his time. The one that you believe, Paul says, to the Jewish people, You believe he was chosen because of his righteousness. And he earned his righteousness as a wage. God owed him something because he was a good man. Let's see what the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He didn't work for it. Paul says if he would have worked for it, it would have been owed to him. It would have been earned. But he didn't earn it. He trusted God and he received the free gift. And this was again 400 years before the law. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? It is a free gift. It's not a cheap gift, but it is a free gift. And a gift that is worked for is no longer a gift. If I give my son a birthday present and I say, when you're done with the weeds out back, you get your birthday present. That's kind of messed up. That's no longer a a gift. He's earned that. It is now a wage. I've paid him for it. And that's what Paul explains. He says, salvation, righteousness, it's a gift apart from the law. You cannot mix faith and works. That is not the road to salvation. You cannot earn God's righteousness. And as a believer, you may be thinking, I know all of this, Pastor. Well, I guarantee most of the early church that Paul's writing to probably understood this as well, but this is what we are confronting in our culture. Why are you going to heaven? Why do you believe you'll be in heaven? Because I am a good person. That will not get you into heaven. And Paul has to say this over and over again because it is human nature to want our gold star. It's human nature to want to be in control, to have something to boast about, to have something to brag about. But no, our salvation is through Christ alone. In Hebrews 11 Verse 8, the author of Hebrews talks about the faith of Abraham. And we have to talk about faith a little bit because the word faith is thrown around like the word love today and it's robbed of its meaning. But listen to how the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 describes the faith of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Remember, Abraham was told to leave everything leave his family, leave the uh, idolatrous worship of his culture and go to a land that God would tell him. He didn't give him the directions. He just said, follow me. And in faith, Abraham went. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. But faith, Sarah herself, also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised." Well, she laughed a little bit when she was told that she'd be having a child, but we're seeing the best thought of her here. Verse 12, therefore for one man and him as good as dead, 
speaking of Abraham in his old age, that's kind of a messed up way to describe the elderly, but, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Here's the example that Abraham gives us. He took God at his word, that is faith. Faith is not simply believing a set of facts. It's not reciting a pledge. Okay, I'm just going to say this and I'll be saved. Faith is believing in a personal Christ, that Jesus is our Savior and I can trust him. It's real, it's personal, and it's a relationship. It's not simply a creed. Abraham was called to forsake everything and follow a personal God. And he obeyed. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? When Jesus went to the disciples and said, leave everything and follow me. And his disciples gave up their lives and followed Jesus. They trusted Jesus. Their faith had feet. Doesn't mean that they were saved through their works, but their faith was displayed through action. So Paul goes on in Romans 4, verse 5. He looks at another patriarch. He's not done here. First he brings up Abraham and makes it plain that Abraham was saved through faith. And then he says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. The one who isn't saved by works, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And then he asks, do you know who did that? King David. Just as David, verse 6, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. That word imputes means put into the account. Blessed is the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Who's this blessed man? that David is speaking of. Again, David, he's another patriarch of the Jewish people. He's held in high esteem. And Paul asks, what does David believe about salvation? We don't have to guess. We can turn to Psalm 32. And that's exactly what Paul does. Was David a perfect man? Not even close. His personal failings are well documented, but he's seen as a good king. All of Israel's Kings after him were compared to him. And this is how David describes the blessedness of the man who God deposits righteousness in his account. Let me give you just the full, or at least the first five verses of Psalm 32. And this is a contemplation of David. David is sitting down, thinking through his relationship with God. A personal relationship. And this is what he writes. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Selah means pause and praise. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Pause and praise. So here's David in the Old Testament preaching the gospel. Who is the blessed man that David speaks of? Now, if you ask any of the other world religions, they would say, I hope it's me. I I hope I've done enough. But if you ask the Bible-believing, born-again Christian, they should say, it's me. 
because it's not up to me. I'm not confident in what I've done. I'm confident in what Jesus Christ has done for me. See, that's what all the other world religions are missing. Blessed assurance. Because our confidence is in Christ, not in our works. And we see even in the Old Testament, as David says, I confess my sins to you, and I know I will be forgiven. Blessed is that man who God does not put unrighteousness in his account, but righteousness. Look at verse 9. And I appreciate you sticking with me here, guys. Romans is, it's not like the historical narrative that we've seen throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts and even on our our Wednesday night studies. This is deep theological uh, truths. But I pray that God would make it personal to you that not only would it grow your affection for him when you see the lengths that he has gone to to make us right with him, but that you would be equipped to talk to others, that you would be able, again, not to have every single answer, but at least equipped to know where to find those answers. Chapter four, verse nine. Does this blessedness, Paul asks, then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. So again, he's thinking ahead. He knows what the critics will say. Okay, you've given us the example of Abraham and you've given us the example of David and what do they have both in common? They're Israelites. They're God's chosen people. So this blessedness still must be for the Jews. The Gentiles, they only exist to keep the hellfire hot. That's what some Jews believed. And what does Paul say? How then was it accounted? Verse 10. While Abraham was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He said, okay, if that's your line of thinking, that only uh, a, a good Jew can be saved, let me ask you this, because you are confident in that sign, that sign of circumcision. That's what you look at for salvation, right? That's an indicator, or more than an indicator, that is your righteousness, So when was he saved? When did he trust God and it was accounted to him as righteousness? It was before circumcision. Let's look at the timeline, Paul says. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. It's a lot of talk about circumcision there, I know. But understand what he's saying here. He's saying Abraham was made right with God before he was ever circumcised. I know my examples are Jewish. But that doesn't mean that this blessedness is only for the Jews. Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, and that happened before circumcision, and he calls circumcision a sign. He says it is a a symbol. A sign is not the thing that the sign represents, right? Our Calvary Central sign, is that the church? No. The building isn't even the church. That sign, what does it represent? The family of believers called Calvary Chapel Central meets here. The sign is not the thing it represents. What's a modern day example of that for Christians? I know we're in church, call it out. The cross? Something else that we do after we get saved because scripture tells us to. Baptism. Baptism. Are we saved through baptism? No, but it is a sign that we are dying with Christ, leaving that old man in the grave and 
sharing in his life, being raised from the dead through the power of Christ. It's a sign, but it is not the thing that the sign represents. So Abraham is an example not just to the Jew, but also the Gentile. Do you see what Paul's doing here? This is really important because I think we can kind of get a twisted view of the Old Testament. We can think that the Old Testament was about the law and that the New Testament is about grace. But as A.W. Tozer puts it, the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving is grace. And the Old Testament is full of God pouring out blessings on the undeserving. In fact, it starts in Genesis with God giving man the gift of life, breathing into him. And if that wasn't enough, he gives him a helpmate and then gives him dominion over all the plants and the animals and gives him a right relationship with him, a personal relationship. God has been, been giving to mankind since the beginning of our history. The Old Testament isn't simply about the law. God's grace shines through it so brightly, and that's what Paul is pointing out here. And that's what the Jewish people were missing. And that's why Jesus told the Pharisees, you study the scriptures, but you miss me completely. How, how can that happen? How can you study the scriptures and still miss me when the words of Moses, the law, the prophets, they all point to me. Look at verse 13. For the promise, Paul writes, that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That promise came well before the law, Paul says. That promise that God would make him the father of many came well before the law. That covenant that God made with Abraham, I have given this land to your descendants. That covenant was made apart from the law. That promise was not dependent on the law. Came down to trust. Look at verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if Abraham was saved by the law and those who came after him were saved by the law, guess what? Faith is no longer needed. So this idea that faith and works can somehow be molded together to achieve salvation, it doesn't make any sense. Because if we can be saved by the law, There's no need for faith. Trust is made void. If we become sons and daughters through careful adherence through the law, a relationship built on trust with God, it's not necessary. We just need to learn the law and we need to do everything in our power to obey it. And then if that's the case, that promise has no effect. A law is not a promise, Paul says. A law says, if you do this, this is going to happen to you. If you don't do this, this is going to happen to you. But a promise, when it comes from God, means this is going to happen. This is going to happen. You can believe the promise, or you can reject it. But God's promise is not the law. So again, works-based salvation. Here's the issue, guys. Works-based salvation, it provides no security. 
There's no assurance. It places strength, the strength of my salvation on my own morality. The gospel places the strength of my salvation on the faithfulness of God and his promises. I accept the promise that I, if I put my faith in Christ, that I will be transformed, I will be given life. I accept the promise, not the law. As Paul writes in Galatians, if righteousness could be gained through the law, that means Christ died in vain. What was the purpose of Christ's death? If somehow we could mold faith and works together, why did Jesus even have to die? We know the law doesn't bring righteousness, but what does Paul say it does bring? If it doesn't bring righteousness, what does the law bring? brings the wrath of God. So think about this. I I know there's a lot here, but think about this for a moment. How does the law bring about wrath? It's interesting. If you study the Old Testament, you know the cycle of the Israelites. They would sin. They would follow after idols. They would worship the pagan gods of their neighbors, and they'd find themselves in bondage. They would cry out for help. God would hear their cries. He would raise up a judge or a prophet. He would free them from bondage. They would return to him. They would return to his ways. They would get comfortable, and then they would be influenced by their culture, and they would follow after false gods again, and the cycle would continue. But there's something that we see in the midst of that cycle, that there would be these generations that their forefathers had been so disobedient that they didn't even know God's law. They didn't even know what God had said. They didn't even know what God had done and how he had delivered the, their grandfathers from the nation of Egypt. They didn't know the, the festivals and the feasts. They didn't know anything about it. And we have examples. King Josiah is one of those examples where King Josiah was rebuilding the temple. It was in shambles. And as they were rebuilding the temple, somebody came across God's word, the book of the law. And they brought it to King Josiah, and King Josiah read the book of the law. And you know what he did? He grabbed his robe and he tore it. And he went into immense mourning and weeping because he saw why they were in the condition that they were in. He saw why the wrath of God had been poured out. This happened with Nehemiah and it happened with Daniel. They didn't know the law, but when they came across it and they finally found it, their eyes were open to the wrath of God. You know, when I... I was fresh out of college. I got a job for a local youth sports league. I won't tell you their name because I'm going to give you some insider information. <laughs> they had me refing soccer when I didn't even know the rules. They said, hey, you got four games on Saturday. Go out there and figure it out. Well, when I was a kid, I played soccer on recess. I never played it really in any official capacity, but I played it on recess, and we played by our own rules. There was no offsides. There was no out of bounds. The only rule was you can't touch it unless you're the goalie, and the goalie would come up to midfield and touch it. So, I mean, it was just no rules whatsoever. But it wasn't until I stepped on the field, and those coaches, they knew the rules, In that moment, the rules mattered. I saw the wrath of these coaches when I did not know the rules. They existed, I just wasn't aware of them. Now that's just a game. But what happens when it's life? There are many people that are breaking God's law. They don't understand that they're guilty of it. And there's a lot of really effective ministries that'll go out and they'll evangelize the lost. And they start with the Ten Commandments. Not because we're governed by the law, but until we've given our life to Christ, we're guilty under the law. And they'll ask, have you lied? Well, yes. Have you ever stolen? Yes. Have you ever 
use the Lord's name. I mean, really, you just need one of them because if you've broke, broken one of the laws, you've broken them all. So there's a, a great deal of effort putting, getting, getting people to a place where they realize they are not good. None of us are good. And when we see God's law, we see his good, righteous wrath. So that's why the law brings about God's wrath. Doesn't mean it's not there. We're just made aware of it. It exposes our sin. Okay, look at verse 16. Therefore, Paul says, again, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Salvation is of faith that it might be according to God's grace so that the promise might be sure. There it is. There's that assurance. We want to believe a promise that we can be sure of. We don't want to look at life and say, I hope, I hope there's life after death. I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been a good enough person that I'm saved. No, we want to be sure, and that assurance can only come through the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, not just the nation of Israel, but many nations. Again, Paul says, let's see what the scriptures say. You think salvation is just for the Jew? What do the scriptures say? Abraham will be fathers, the father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He did that for Abraham and Sarah, didn't he? Of your past childbearing years? You're a hundred years old, you can't bear children? Well, I'm going to say right now that you will. And that's a promise. And those things which did not exist, then they did. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. It was about confidence in God's promise. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul is describing what faith looks like. It's just not a verbal attesting to some fact, right? And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who has delivered up who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He is describing what faith, according to grace, looks like. And guys, understand, faith is not a work. As some would teach in the Reformed persuasion, I would disagree, faith is not a work. Faith is believing a promise. It's trusting. That's the blessed assurance. We trust God. And we trust in his son, Jesus Christ. See, Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And he was justified in that belief. And that's the message we share with others. There is no good work that will make you work righteous before God. But Jesus has done the work. If you will trust him, not in the historical Jesus, although he is historical, 
but in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you allow him to be your savior and king? Do you desire to know him? Because he desires to know you. I'm going to close with a, just an illustration that John Corson uses. When we live this life thinking that we can be saved by works. He describes it like a game of shoots and ladders. He says, remember the game of shoots and ladders and the frustration you felt when in the f- you're in first place and you come to that last shoot and down you go. You guys remember, sh- anyone play shoots and ladders? Is this missing completely? You guys remember games? You guys remember board games? <laughs> And then John Corson goes on. He says, if salvation came by trying and striving and religion or works, our walk would be a perpetual game of shoots and ladders. On Monday, we would have devotions and we'd move up two rungs. On Tuesday, we would go to morning worship and we'd advance five more steps. On Wednesday, we would come to Bible study and we'd climb up three more rungs. On Thursday, we would seek the Lord in the evening and find ourselves three rungs from the top. We're almost there. And on Friday, we would talk with our neighbor about the Lord. But on Saturday, we would get angry and we'd sin and we'd start back at the bottom. And that's the way so many people live their lives today. And I think that's why so many people deconstruct their faith and they walk away from Jesus because they never really understood that salvation was not based on what they could do, but what, on what Jesus had done for them. And if you're playing that game, give up. Give up, like my kids do when they lose. Give up. Walk away. Give up and look to Jesus. Develop a relationship with him. Trust in him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all other things will be added unto you.